You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is the show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. Thank you, Nina, for joining me today on this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Uh, We're live here in London at Watson Farley Williams. And I suppose the first thing we wanted to cover is if you could do a quick introduction of yourself on mainly how you got into legal and what you do at the moment. Oh, how did I get into legal? Uh, (laughs) That's a very good question. I wasn't planning it. It was not necessarily a career plan. I had been a trainer and then I had moved into support as part of an outsourced service for an engineering company. And then from there, I'd moved into working for the National Audit Office and then I'd worked for an investment banking arm. And the role that I found in each of those locations, although the parameters in terms of the applications you were delivering was very different, and perhaps the expectations of the users were slightly different, fundamentally, what you had to do day to day was make sure stuff worked, get stuff done, communicate with your users, and make sure that when something was being planned, it was being planned well. When I moved into legal, I had this vision that it would be something much more organised. I felt that because lawyers were perhaps slightly more procedural driven, that the IT environment that supported them would have to be much more procedural driven. (laughs) Third law firm in, not necessarily sure that's the case within (laughs) IT organisations, but it's it's a different set of challenges, I think, because the technology is very specific. So the product is still that advice via documentation and whether that's email or whether that's a word document or a pdf the products that we're still dealing with the the output if you like is still very very physical so for me the role that i play and that i have played i would say in all of the jobs that i've done is i'm that customer advocate within the it department i'm the one that says We can't do that because that's going to impact the customer. We can't do that because that's not going to help the process. We can't do that because... And it it might feel like a lot of the time I'm saying no, but actually (laughs) what I'm saying is please put them at the centre of your world. Right. Please put the customer in the middle of what you're doing, designing, implementing, and go, am I helping or am I hindering? Am I going to make it better? Am I going to make it worse? And sometimes we make it worse in the short term in order to make it better in the long term. And I think the challenge that we most definitely have within IT organizations is just we measure ourselves in the short term. Did I get that project out? Have I saved that money? Does that application do that thing? And we often forget that the real return on investment doesn't come within that first six months, but it comes at a cultural change level when your trainees come in the next year and that's just how they do it. And then the next year it's almost like you know you're you're building you're building a foundation because that's the only way in which the organization will ever work. Hmm. And, and from a service delivery perspective, that's that very, very slow evolution of change. So when you put in a brand new product, yeah. everybody will do what they've already done in a different way. But in order to drive change properly, you need to start right at the bottom and go, we're, we're building a different, you know, we're just building a different working practice. And a lot of the time, I think firms go, that's too difficult to do. Change management's really very hard. And I think it becomes really difficult if you try and move everybody all at the same time. And, and the service delivery, my, my role actually is to manage some of that change. My role is to make sure that we've got right communications, right change plans, the right people in the right place at the right time. And 
ultimately that all of those disaster recovery and emergency recovery procedures, when we don't get it right up front, that's, mm. that's also what the service delivery does. That was a very, very detailed <laughs> answer. <laughs> this is definitely going to go well. I don't have to do much talking at all. So, okay, there's a lot, lot of information there. So take me back to when you moved into legal. Yep. Was that just a accidental move that you were just looking at something and you saw, oh, law firms, that seems like an organized world. Let's go there. Do you think that was something calculated because you had some preconceived notions that would be better than what you were doing previously? No, actually. It was the job. It was, for me, I had been working as sort of a London-based national customer service manager, mm. you know, what we used to call service delivery managers, and it was the opportunity to move into a European role. Right. So it was the opportunity to extend beyond, and the firm that I was working in first off was moving into, you know, expanding in Europe. So we had Brussels, Paris, we had right. offices in Germany, and they were getting bigger. So the opportunity to work with a different cross-section of mm-hmm. people, to be exposed to a different level of technology and technology requirement is what pulled me to the role. So yeah. I, I actually, I don't think I considered legal at all. <laughs> I, I don't, I guess having worked in lots of different places and seen very similar things, I, I didn't really think that legal would be any different to any of those places. One place I worked was an engineering firm. Right. They had very, very specific requirements. And when they were building pipelines across Kazakhstan, they had zero room for error. There was none of this, oh, I'm sorry, your systems are down, because they were mapping out and digging and all of those sorts of other things. So so they had high levels of availability. Um, Also, having worked for the National Audit Office, they were very much, they were very different. They had high expectations, but fundamentally, if your email services went down at 4.30 in the afternoon, it was it was kind of okay to go home. I'm sure it's not like that now, <laughs> but so, so very different environments. And, and so the role itself was what interested me, mm. the scope. And I think those first couple of weeks in legal, I mean, I'd never used a document management system before. I'd never used metadata stripping before. I'd never used time recording systems before. I mean, I had time recorded on a spreadsheet, but... And, and only once a month when somebody had asked me to estimate how much time I'd spent on a project. So all of these quite new, you know, new areas of technology were, for me, at the beginning, go, oh, you, you do it like that. I mean, dictation. When I first started at my first law firm, we hadn't implemented any digital dictation. Oh. So there were still cassettes and, you know, players and pedals and all of yeah. those sorts of other crazy things. And, and I do remember that implementation being, we've taken away... 50 cassette players and cassettes and and again in the environments i've been we hadn't, there was no dictation and and it looked archaic these things did look like yeah. they'd been sort of distributed in the 90, early 1990s so it was a great that first couple of years was a huge learning curve mm. and then do, uh, do you think that learning curve is something that's still there i mean i'm sure there's always going to be a learning curve if you move roles but do you think coming into legal now versus when you did is the learning curve just as steep as it is now because obviously a lot of those systems are still there the dms's the metadata stripping all of those things but a lot of them have changed a lot of them have improved you'd hope right for one most of them have different ui and they're more user-centric now so do you think that makes a tangible difference it might be challenging but I mean you guys have probably updated and changed your DMSs now right from what you had so I think the answer is yes there's still a massive learning curve Mm. but what's really interesting me is the integration between the two I think when I started there was an understanding that a lot of these systems would be discrete right now the biggest question is why doesn't that flow from there Mm. so every time we implement something new why can't I just right click and 
upload? Why haven't I got integration with my third-party services like DocuSign and IQ and all of those sorts yeah. of other things straight into my DMS? Why can't I just, you know, why must I have something separate to do this? And, and what happens is our challenge is often with so many different add-ins, the, the primary product, if we look at the primary product as a DMS at the moment, gets quite bloated. Mm. And I, I think those integration pieces have to get slightly better. And we, we've got to then think about, does everything need to be integrated? Does just something need to be integrated? Am I best of breed? Do I need best of breed in all of those things? Or can I take you know, 10% of that because that's all I need, but 90% of, so, so looking at the Litera products, yeah. do I need all of it? Do I just need templates? Do I just, and, and, and having a look at whether or not we need a little bit of lots of different products yeah. or one product that does a little bit of something. I'm not sure I know the answer to the question. Yeah. And I think it's an important question to ask because, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of and believer that eventually there has to be mass consolidation, right? And Obviously, the company I work for, Latera, we do that and we're a big, you know, we're a big supporter of this. But generally across the, I think across the profession and industry, if you look at all of the different startups and companies sort of popping up in legal tech every single day, A, it's wonderful, but B, over time that has to come down because choice is fantastic, but too much choice can be detrimental, certainly in the long term, because people don't opt for anything and I mean, I think, and I have no idea if this is going to be true, so I guess, I guess we'll find out in the future, but I think just being a, having the platformization, if that's a word, or commoditization of services and products makes a lot of sense where you have whatever a base might be, a foundation might be, and then you essentially add on different services as you need them. Yeah. Because I think as a law firm or an IT department, you then have the flexibility because at the moment, generally, you're getting all of these things and saying, okay, we have a DMS, we have this, we have this, everyone gets the same. But guess what? Not everyone is doing the same kind of work and not everyone needs everything. So your point about do we need a bit of everything or do we need the whole thing, I think is, is completely right on. I don't know what will happen because it means you're trying to get all of these various different players in, in the industry talking to one another. And obviously they have competing priorities and they're not always mutually exclusive. So you have to figure out a way forward. I don't know if that will happen. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a really good point because when you look at a project or a product, what you try and do is is measure the value of success for mm. your business. So we have a thousand users in the firm that I work in. And what you want to be able to do is have 80% of those users getting some real value because that's what it's going to take to get it on the desktop and get it out and all of those sorts of other things. Because that journey is so long, mm. for want of a better way to describe <laughs> it, you really, really want a lot of people to get the value from it. However, if it was easier to say these 200 people could have this and have it really quickly um, and this 50 people could have that and have that really quickly, but also know that, that, that ultimately that, that sort of central core could be retained and the integrity of that could be retained, that you could add a bit on and take a bit off really quickly. What you're then doing is building a much more flexible environment. Mm -hmm. And, and then you, what you're saying to people is you own your environment. So particularly working in international offices, you say to the Dubai office, you can have something that really, really works for you and, and you don't need to come through six hours of training for stuff that you're probably never going to use. Yeah. And what we're going to do is really focus on you and what you need and, and your environment and all of those sorts of other things. And I think that the challenge that we have, particularly in corporate IT departments, corporate operations, is, is that moving, moving that massive IT infrastructure is very, very difficult. 
it's like moving a massive tanker in the ocean. Yeah. You, you've decided on your, your direction, you've decided on your journey, that's the way that you're going. And yeah. in order to move, you know, it takes quite a lot of work. But what you really need is you need a fleet. Mm-hmm. You need something really big in the middle that, that fundamentally can lead lots of little small boats around the side, good messaging, good communications. But then when you need to move, you can all move as one. But mm. if something needs to come up a little bit faster or something needs to be a little bit further out, you have the flexibility to do that. Mm. And, and that's what I think we lack. And that's the biggest step, I think, for us moving up, that you're right, a platform. A platform that says... You can have this, you can have that. If you need services because you're litigation, you have this. If you need services because you're real estate, you have that. But if you're litigation and you don't need the real estate services, we don't need to put them on your yeah. desktop because we don't need to worry about yeah. it. And I know there are hosted solutions that enable you to do all of those things, but we're, we're still wedded to that. I think we're all we're still wedded to that one size fits all. All lawyers mm. need all things just in case they need all things. Yeah, I mean, there's part of also part of it goes down to just boils down to just human nature, right? People like the idea of being able to access certain things, even if they know in reality they may not use it. It's it's very difficult, I think, for generally in a professional environment, especially to say, oh, I don't think I'm going to use this, so don't worry about it, right? If you, ha- if you give people the option between, hey, do you want something that has 10 features versus you have something that has two and features could be substituted for anything, right? It could be a product or service, most of the time, people tend to choose, oh, I want the one for 10 features just in case I might need this in the future. So I think there needs to be, and you talked about it a bit earlier, that that sort of cultural change mm-hmm. in saying, look, it's okay for you to be have a minimalistic approach almost, knowing that if you need the other functionalities later down the road, and I want to come back to the point about, you know, seeing the ROI 12 months down the road or whatever it might be, might be. I, I think that needs to be there because, and there's a, you know, a base level trust that's needed to say, look, we are giving you ownership of what your environment looks like, which is a foreign concept to mm-hmm. most people. And it's okay for you to drive this. It's okay for you to just request something if you need it to be added or if it needs to be removed from this environment, because it means that your environment is going to be so much more fluid and it's going to work a lot better because you have the key things you need to do your job well. And then everything else, which is essentially a distraction, it gets taken away. Do you think people aren't used to controlling their own environment? I think maybe 10 years ago that might have been the case right now, however. I think people like to think they're in control of their environment. They're in control of their personal environment, right? So smartphones and tablets yeah. and everything that they put on their, their personal computing yeah. environment, they get to choose. They wake up in the morning and say, today I want something that tracks my fitness or yeah. watches my heart rate or reminds me about my appointment, they get to choose mm. the services that make their life yeah. easier from you know, something that someone else controls, yeah. you know, whether or not you're an Android user or whether or not you're a, an Apple user. Yeah. And so I, whilst I do understand some of that, yeah. there are some basics that every single smartphone has to have, this idea that they don't know or they're not used to being in control of their own destiny, I think we need to challenge that. I, I agree with you, but I think it's an education point, right? Because if you, I think smartphones are a great example because it took a lot of work and effort from a lot of developers to say, hey, you have choice yes. to not use X, but use this instead. And there's always going to be resistance to that. But eventually there is that tipping point, that critical mass of users or individuals. And it's easier generally in a in a B2C type environment because you can then go off things like reviews and so on. And you can see almost, okay, this app, for example, has 
I don't know, like five-star reviews from 20,000 people or that Amazon model, right? I will go for this, but they need something because generally people are okay to take, I I think, and I could be completely wrong in this, that's my hypothesis, that people are more willing to take a higher degree of risk with their personal life than they will in the professional environment only because they're also not as well educated. And I think the consequence in their mind, whether it's real or not, seem to be higher if they like, oh, I'm going to own my professional environment than if it is going. And part of it is just the way things used to be, right? So it's changing that and it is changing, but saying, oh, actually, I don't want this. I want this instead, because it's still, especially think about law firms. And I don't know if it's a good or bad thing. You can tell me from your experience, there's still going to be, if a partner comes to you and says, I want X, Y, and Z technology, generally, someone will say, great, let us look into it. And then they'll go into that. Very few instances and very few firms will let them just say, great, let's get this. You have it. Run with it. See how it works. Right. Which is, I don't know if it works better or not. So, and I would agree with that. that and that's that freedom to fail paradox that we have you know, we have to try a thousand things and succeed at 10 rather than try 10 and succeed, succeed mm-hmm. at one. You're right. The danger, the dangerous expectation, having worked within the operations of IT departments, the yeah. danger is it all works and then everybody wants it. And then how do we make it work for everybody? Or mm. that scope creep. So you have something which does exactly what it says on the tin. Great, fantastic. And then the next question is, can I integrate it with my DMS? Yeah. Can it automatically update my time recording system? Can I have it via my smart? And, and so what you have is something discrete that works really well yeah. for one individual. And suddenly, because they love it, they want to bring it into their own professional ecosystem. And that then becomes difficult from an IT yeah. perspective. So, so, I, so I do understand that. But I, I think the transition between that... <laughs> Again, back to that, putting myself in the middle as the customer. Mm. That's what I want. Somehow, this disconnect between how easy it is outside of work and how complex it seems to be inside of work is something we've got to get over. Because this complexity at work, that's what makes it hard to learn. Mm. That's what makes it hard to own. That's what makes it hard to understand whether or not I should be using product X or product Y. And when you've got two products that do the same thing but slightly different and you're training and I've got quick reference guides that I never mm. have time to read. <laughs> that That's the challenge. My When I need something at home, I look it up on YouTube. I never phone somebody. Yeah. Whereas here, in most law firms, the first thing I do is pick up the phone yeah. to the help desk. Now, I've worked in organizations where we try to push our service and we've tried to push champions and we've tried to do all of those sorts of other things and they work in slightly different ways. Mm. They don't work in law firms. Do you think that's because the the product and the processes are a bit more specialized or do you think that's partly a sort of a training and culture point and we keep coming back to culture but I think I I think it's so I'm not sure it's training Mm. I think it's cultural but I also go back to fundamentally the sorts of things that we do the the big stuff is the same is the stuff that I learned when I first started in law so creating documents we've got hairstyle we've probably got quite complex multi-level numbering we Mm. do things with documents with cross-referencing and footnotes that other organizations or other you know industries don't do yeah we have metadata strippers uh, that are really important so, so that product that we've been creating i would say for at least the last 15 or 16 yeah. years we've got better at refining and doing and all of that it's not doing the same thing mm. and until and so and a lot of people that work in that in those roles so a lot of the legal pas that we've got here the document production team they've been in their jobs for a very long time and this is I, you know our document production team have been 
You know, this is, they're not new. They're not, you know, these are not 21-year-olds that have just come out of college wondering what to do with the legal documents. So this idea that it's a training issue, that they don't somehow know how to use their technology, I struggle with that a bit because surely they must. They do this every single day. Have we got that flow right? I still don't think we have. And therein is that that challenge for us around the support that we deliver. We're constantly fixing the same thing. You know, we're constantly fixing broken numbering. We're constantly fixing broken cross-referencing. And all of those, from a document perspective, we're constantly wondering why this, I don't know, massive loan agreement won't, keep, you know, won't condense down to something I can send as a PDF to my clients and stuff like that. So, so I, I, I think we're still trying to improve the way in which we've always been doing things rather than ask ourselves the question, is there a completely different way of doing it? And, and to that end, if I'm a lawyer and I've been a lawyer for 10, 15 years, I'm still doing the same thing. I need it feels much more complex. So over here, this is, this is radically changed in terms of all the stuff that I can do outside. But internally, it doesn't feel like it's improved. Internally, it doesn't feel like it's slicker. And yes, I can now do it on my phone and I can do it from home and I can do all of those sorts of other things. But it's still quite a laborious and complex process. And when it goes wrong, it tends to go horribly wrong. <laughs> so I, that for me is... So, so we, you know, we talked a little bit about integration and we talked about the change and all of those things. I, I think that comes part and parcel of the whole transformation of where we need to be. And and we've got to change, I, I think we've got to change the way people work in different cycles. And So I, I, I don't believe we're going to necessarily change a senior partner's way of working because that's been successful for them. What I do think we have to do is think of innovative ways to make that trainee think about their technology very differently, think about their operations and their services and I, I don't want to advocate a you know, self-service for trainees only kind of way but we've got to be better at giving them that support at their fingertips I mean I'm a massive whether or not it's you know the right thing or the wrong thing I'm a massive Amazon user mm. because I'm a full-time working parent right and my daughters will often go oh I've got a party on Saturday, I need a present. Right. I don't have any time to buy that. So I do a lot of my shopping very, very late at night and I love the fact that I've got Prime because I know that it's coming and all of those sorts of other things. And when I have a problem, they are available via chat or via a huge range of self-service options at any time of the day because they recognise mm. that as a consumer of their services, I may not need help in my traditional working day. And that for me is quite a, that's quite a powerful model because they've thought about when I might shop and they've thought about what I might do and when I might need help. And most of the time it's not, you know, during the working day. It's because you have lots of time and it's very chilled out. It's when you're in those frantic moments. It's midnight and I've got a party in 24 hours and I really do need six-hour delivery type thing that they've really thought about those services. And, and I'm not sure we design that in when we put things in place. Best case scenario, worst case scenario, worst case scenario, one o'clock in an airport, trying to get the document out. Does this do what I think it should be doing? Trying to make a Skype conference call whilst in a really, really bad connection area um, that may not be secure. Have we thought of worst case scenario solutions Mm. for our lawyers? Because they're not sitting in their offices anymore. They're not just in a building where we we all know it's secure and we know the Wi-Fi is lovely. They're everywhere, all places and all time. Mm. And being asked by their clients to do some crazy, crazy things. And I'm not sure that we're looking at that model for them. So 80% of the time when you're in the office, it's lovely. But what about those 20% of bonkers situations that we need to be thinking about for you? I think it comes around to, you sort of touched upon this in in the introduction section, which is around being customer-centric, right? So I suppose my question to you is who's, you know, you mentioned 
that you're a customer advocate. Yes. Who's who's your customer, right? Is your customer the firm's client? Is your customer a internal stakeholder or someone, something else? I would say both. So primarily the lawyers and the business services people within the firm. And I mm. think... For me, those are equally important. So it's equally important to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the lawyer, being asked to do some crazy things, but also in the shoes of the financial accounting people being asked by the lawyer to do some crazy things. We're all often looking at the request going, are they sure they want to do that? That kind of thing. So, So both of those things. But then also where needed the client, you know, finding that... Because the lines are blurring. We've been asked to be subject matter experts in things that we've never been asked to before. We've been asked to make recommendations for products and services. You want someone to help you do knowledge management. You know that law firms do really, really good knowledge management. Who would they recommend? No, you want someone to talk to you about information security. You know law firms have got really, really strong information security practices. Who do they recommend? So the technology departments of law firms are now being asked questions by lawyers and by clients Mm. saying, so these, we want to partner with these people because we know they know that we've done this really well and whilst it's not a specific value add in terms of legal work it's a really good you know they call them stickies don't they yeah. in which to make people sticky because you build links in, in, in lots and lots of different ways and if you project that into the future do you think that trend continues where it departments will continue becoming even more that's even possible of subject matter experts because there's a client need for it right are, are you having to learn and this is you Personally, are you having to learn sort of new technologies, new processes that you probably didn't think about, you know, that would become relevant to your role maybe even two, three, five years ago? I don't know if that's the case or... So I think the biggest one is security. Okay. I I think the security needs of the clients have rocketed and particularly when doing those security audits and questionnaires Mm. some of the questions that are asked although they seem very extreme and we often feel that we're held to much higher standards than they are ultimately when we implement those processes and all all those changes we then get the whole question of oh who did you use what did you use you know what lessons have you learned because we need to do similar sorts of things within within the client environment so i think security is a big one i think we're a little bit behind the curve with things like cloud and our how we've how wholesale as an industry we've adopted that risk having been obviously a very risk averse environment and i think particularly with smaller clients so if you are a relatively small client using a large legal service for Mm. whatever reason and you feel that you can leverage why would you not I'm I'm buying legal services from you and as part and parcel of that legal service I'd like to extend all of the things Mm. now what's interesting from a a law firm's perspective is is that you you often try and cross sell Yeah. you often try and cross sell with your finance and your employment and all of those sorts of other things if you had the right level of technology services would you extend that if you had a managed technology yeah. solution would you try and cross sell that and I and I think there were quite a lot of firms that are doing that you now as they create their consultancy arms as they create their you know their niche market whatever it is software or services they are cross-selling that platform across the client base so you are then building a different connection with that client 
So RPC, when they launched their service, I think last year or the year before, mm. yeah, that came out of a need from internally that was then developed, that was then, you know, we can then sell, cross-sell this across. We, yeah. we, we can take this out of just the technology department and we can cross-sell. And that puts you in a very different place with your clients. So yeah. you recognize the need within your industry. Internally, you've developed a solution. What you're not just going to do is work to not just with one client, but all clients. So you're, you're completely integrated then with that mm. law firm. But it's born out of a, a marriage between the technology and the, the, the legal service that you wish to provide, but not just one side of the coin. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's an important point for so many reasons, because one, you have to become a an expert in understanding what your client and what their industry industry demands actually because you can't develop those services no. and and those solutions unless you have a good understanding of that and as you serve and you know it, it is challenging i think depending on what kind of work you do because if you are spread across a variety of different sectors and regions then it's much harder to see those trends not that you can't it just makes it more difficult because you might have a high volume of work but because it's spread across so many different areas it's difficult to pick out the micro but having said that then you see more cross-sectional trends whereas if you are a firm that does just I don't know, litigation of one type, then you'll be able to see trends within that sector. Then you have to evaluate, right? And have a vision to see, okay, we think this is where this is going. And you can probably even drive that change if you're, you know, the first, second, third person to think about that. And it does, I think it becomes more of a competitive advantage. And I hear a lot more about this in Europe than I do in the US, especially as I speak to a lot of law firm leaders who are, I wouldn't say concerned, but they are keeping an eye on the big four who have those other services and they're going more into legal because they're doing exactly the same yeah. thing just from you know a different the, perspective yeah. but I mean if you were a medium sized law firm so let's take you know one of the big players so, mm. so one of the, the big legal firms top 10 magic circle develops a you know a, a technology litigation service yeah. that is endorsed and used within a magic circle firm mm. that is now available in a modular form to firms outside of the to, to resolve that, that particular litigation issue straight away what you've got is a level of endorsement that yeah. says oh yeah so, so you know Freshfields use that it was yeah. developed and supported by a Freshfields incubator or whatever it is right. and so the clients that you you then have is a small to medium sized law firm they go oh well if you're using that module we know that it's got a really good pedigree mm. so it's that it's almost like a flip side yeah. we're not you know so you're not it's not the legal services I mean it is because yeah. it's been developed with Freshfields legal services and, and, and all of that know-how from those big firms has been poured into right. that development but then other people can reap those rewards yeah. so uh, I, that's the cross-section and, and so that's the integration piece in that cross-section yeah. which I think we'll see more of and I think that's I mean, you know, there's a bunch of different incubators that are sort of popping up. So Fuse being the most mm. popular one, perhaps, right? Alan and Overy. And I, I have to imagine, maybe I'll speak to someone there, but I have to imagine that's probably something that goes through their mind because I think as a, a startup in that incubator, you have two key things going for you. One, you have a big brand name behind you. Two, you have a huge resource. I don't know if this works or not because I have no idea. I don't know enough about Fuse. But I imagine they have the resource available to test out the solutions and iterate on them using the ANO lawyers globally, yep. right? And if that works and you already have a customer, a huge customer, again, I don't know if this works in real life, but that's to me, that has to be the idea. I think you're absolutely right because then you are developing something 
almost right there with the customer, right? Your future customer. And it means that you can develop things a lot faster. You can develop things based on needs. Obviously, the thing to watch out for is, you know, the kind of work that A&O do, does that apply to other firms? And with a large firm like that, probably it will. But I mean, if we said to you, what we want to do is co-develop you, come in, you know, we've got a specific problem. We're going to put 50 of our lawyers available for your guys to, you'd buy our hand off. Yeah. Yeah, so so that that's the so the you know the external software development services and, and companies at the moment are challenged mm. with that shifting model. If in-house development becomes the norm, you're right. A and O have access to thousands of lawyers, yeah. but you don't. Yeah, and so the nuances, the changes, the insight, all of those things that they can gain mm. means that. You're right. Potentially, they go to market faster. They potentially have a broader, more flexible solution, and that's very, very specific for them. And, and if they're able to develop that, then who knows what they'll then go on to develop yeah. after? If someone goes, "Oh, this is a fantastic service for whatever." Now, can you have a look at whatever we've been buying third-party yeah. services for? And I mean, it's already. I think there was news about it last week. I want to say where. The firm is developing something that's then been acquired by a legal technology company, right? Yeah. That it's quite a rare instance, but I wonder if that's the kind of thing that will happen more frequently. Obviously, you need the firms to be innovative in a certain way, and that's a very loaded word, but you need them to be able to do these things. You need the firms to have the resources, the developers, the product people, everything else, the UI, UX experts, to be able to create this product. And But I suppose, again, the, the concept is exactly the same, that yes. you already have a customer in mind. So as, you know, as someone acquiring technology, then it makes sense to say, okay, I will acquire a technology that has a customer base, that has a known customer base mm. and a brand behind it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's, it's interesting, but it's such a new thing in some ways that you just, I, I don't know where it will go. I know there's more and more incubators, but I don't think a lot of them have been around for long enough to essentially prove the ROI of, you know, how well it works for a law firm. Mm. So I was at the Legal Geek Tech conference a while, a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Um, I think, you, you know, I think there'll be more of them. I think there'll be more state, um, not state, firm. <laughs> cut that bit out. There'll be more firm sponsored development Mm. because one of the things that was very clear when I spoke to a lot of the people at the Legal Geek um, conference was that integration piece is missing. Yeah. I'm sure we can do that. I'm sure we can integrate with that. I'm sure. And and they've probably got wonderful developers that can do anything, but they haven't had access to a law firm. They haven't been in just yet. They're on startup mode. So they think, and I'm sure they absolutely can, but they can't definitely say, yep, we've been working with CMS, whoever they are now, and we can definitely guarantee that it works. Yeah. With the 25 applications that you have as core so we know that it works with Farsight and digital dictation and this and that and metadata strippers and all of those things and I think so in some ways that challenge itself should hopefully in the future become easier as you get this consolidation because at the moment you are trying to you know it's a challenge uh, you know as a software developer to say okay we're going to create something it has to be compatible with all of these systems if you have five systems all of the different permutations that could exist in there you know it may be manageable if you have 20 systems and that's definitely not even close to the limit of how many systems a law firm will have right The, the permutations grow exponentially so you have to i think simplifying that entire process that workflow after you understand it should make 
huge, huge changes downstream as well as a developer, as a legal tech vendor, and to your end user, right? Because, I mean, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Mm. It doesn't matter what the technology is, how it works. Frankly, people don't care. They want something. Well, people do care. Not everyone cares. They just want, end users generally want something they can use easily, that they can learn easily, and that they don't have to worry about whether it's going to break the documents or whatever else it might be they're using. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that change, that, that is the big cultural shift. Yeah. And I'm surprised to a certain extent from a legal operations perspective why we don't focus more on the change management piece. I mean, we do in some respects, and I think we're getting much, much better at it, but we, we still think it's a little bit of a churn process. We, you know, we make the change, we tell people about the change, we train the change, we deliver the change, yeah. job done. And I, I think that one thing that I'm seeing most definitely with my vendors is I, I have three different sets of people now. So I have that pre-sales team, yeah. I have that implementation team, and then I have what are called customer success teams. So this isn't actually about, I'm going to sell you more stuff. This is, I'm going to make sure that you're using all the stuff that you've paid for, that you've got properly. And my job is not about more sales. My job Mm. is knowing that at the end of the day, you're using everything that you should do in the absolute best way. And that has often fallen, if I'm honest, within IT organizations to the IT training teams. Yeah. So there's sort of the L&D teams at the end who go around and do all the clear up and the floor walking and how you're using it. And I'm just checking in and the top tips and things like that. But that idea of extending your change program 12 months beyond the change to go. So this is where we were in December 2018. And this is where we are in terms of our process, our efficiency in 2019. That, I think, is where we really need to be if we're going to make that cultural shift. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things that's driving that change from a vendor perspective is actually a lot of vendors and providers are changing their pricing model so it's no longer a perpetual thing where you buy something you pay a huge chunk of money here you go it's yours whatever right you might be paying maintenance on it to get updates and so on that's not as important if you are now buying on a subscription basis which is by far the most common place right especially with more and more SaaS companies coming up it kind of puts the onus on both the technology provider and the user to say look we both have some skin in the game now we will continue improving the technology and and that was the thing that was missing before and we will make sure that you're using it right which is i mean i love the idea of the customer success team because frankly you don't like generally people want to produce things that are used that are utilized the way that they imagine it to be and maybe some novel ways they didn't think about and you don't get to do that unless you're actually focusing mm. on it and i i think also that subscription model is a challenge mm. because if i'm only paying for a year and after a year i don't like it and there's someone else i can change mm. Whereas when I'd invested heavily in the yeah. license model, that's sort of, I'm going to squeeze this until it falls over. Yeah. So I do recognize the shift into, although I'm helping you use it now, I'm actually safeguarding the future because that means that you'll stay with us and come back to us. Yeah. And that I think is really important. But I'm, for me as the service delivery person, it, that that is the... That is the bit after that's Mm. really important because if we don't get that right, if we don't get adoption right from an operations perspective, we will continue to take service desk calls. Yeah. 
ad infinitum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, because it's too difficult to set permissions or it's too difficult to understand how to do the function. And I'm still using my old working practices just in the new system. Yeah. So adoption and that ultimately that piece after, which is that follow up of are you actually using it in that way? And then removing the way, the old ways in which to do it. Yeah. Now, I, I, I do think that sometimes everybody looks for the path of least resistance. Yeah. Everybody falls back on what they know until they can't. And whilst that initial pain might be really, really difficult for them you know, to, to absorb, once that's the only way to do it, yeah. and it's the best way, then over time that becomes better for them. Yeah. But nobody likes being told what to do. No. I think that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, uh, the, the change management, and we'll start wrapping up in a second, but the change management thing is so important because I think you just hit the nail on the head earlier when you, you know, all of this just boils down to you have to try things and you have to give it time for people to adopt things, especially when you're dealing with any sort of sizable organization, right? So you know, the, the firm that you work for, if you are implementing new technologies, I don't think think it's very wise to say okay we've given it six months it didn't work out i think you have to look at the impact and it means it needs to be carefully done right you can't just be like okay we'll give it 12 months that's just an arbitrary time frame you need to set benchmarks say look based on what the provider is saying based on our experiences knowing our users we think there should be x improvement in six months time and then you evaluate it right i'm a huge belief in doing it more scientifically to say okay did that work if not instead of saying it, it was a failure let's actually look at why it didn't work was it because we didn't roll out the technology until a month ago so the six month time frame is kind of mm. moot or was it because maybe this isn't the right thing or some other reason right there's a huge spectrum in the middle of those two two ends and evaluating that is difficult and it's time consuming and that sort of is a bit of a pressure because people are asked to do a lot of different things. And, and I think there's a real fear of evaluation. Yeah. You know, so when you evaluate, did it do what we thought it would do and has it really improved? If the answer is no, what do you do with that? Yeah. Well, and it's also the word evaluation and because people also take it very personally, usually you'll have a champion who's like, well, we get this and they don't want to be the person saying that didn't work yeah. because they're afraid that will be seen as failure or something else. And it makes them look bad. And usually that's not the case. I mean, that's how it should work. It should be, we have a hypothesis based on whatever factors. Let's just test it out. And maybe that's what it should be, right? Because it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. You either prove your hypothesis and everyone works, everything works out. Very rosy world. <laughs> or you disprove your hypothesis, but you still, like, it was a test, yes. right? That's the whole point of it. Yeah. I think right back to the beginning, that speed of yeah. implementation and that that's the challenge, right? Because mm. if you do things quick and you do them fast and they don't work, yeah. then you can fail quickly and move on. Yeah. But when it takes two years to implement and right. you've really invested and you've stood up in front of your business and gone, I'm I'm pinning my <laughs> colours to this master yeah. type thing and then it doesn't work, that feels a lot more personal. Oh, for sure. Whereas if it was, oh yeah, that didn't work, but we're still onto this and we've moved on, then there's that speed, yeah. that sort of turnover that, that makes it feel much more fluid. Yeah. But I'm not sure it makes it feel less personal. Yeah. But you get used to the fact that some things will work and some things won't work. And the, the firm as a whole gets used to some things working and not some things yeah. won't work. And I think, you know, I, I heard something yesterday. I, 
which was fail fast, yes. fail smart. Yes. And it's a smart bit that's important, yeah. right? Because fail fast is very commonplace, especially in the sort of startup culture. Yeah. But it needs to be failing in a smart way, which just means learning lessons from your failures, which is absolutely fine. Everyone's going to fail at something. There's no doubt about that. Learn from it, move on, and, you know, hopefully you'll improve. It's kind of the idea. Okay, I've kept your time for long <laughs> enough. So in wrapping up, I suppose my two questions would be, first, do you have any sort of key ask of anyone listening to this? And you may not, it's okay. Anything they should ponder at least. And second, where can people, you know, connect with you if they wanted to on LinkedIn or anything like that? Or if you had any other ask of the audience? So no real ask to the audience. I think for me, just that... Anybody listening who's working in a service and delivery environment, I, I would say that our biggest challenge is always to keep the customer in mind. And and I think think beyond very much think beyond what our everyday corporate IT departments can deliver and really, really push the boundaries. I, I think our customers are much, much better at absorbing change than we give them credit for if we manage it in the right way. Mm. Um, and secondly, yes, if anybody does want to connect with me via LinkedIn, I am up there under my Perfect. name, Nina Gretrick. Great. And I'll include your your LinkedIn link in the, in the show notes for this as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.